morning we're studying the book of Revelation uh, together. And uh, while we're finding our way there, last book of the Bible, uh, a reminder that Sunday night we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we'll be studying uh, the small but really, really important book of Obadiah among the minor prophets this evening at 6 o'clock. Each of you are invited. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. Jesus speaking, writing to the church at Smyrna. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your word to the church of Smyrna. We thank you that it is your word to us as well. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us, by your Holy Spirit, the capacity to hear this from your throne and from your lips to us today, all of its exhortation, edification, and comfort. And we pray for this work of your Spirit in your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Last week we examined Jesus' message to the church at Ephesus, which had left its first love. And this week in uh, this letter to the church at Smyrna, we have Jesus' message to a church and also to individuals uh, living in an environment that is hostile uh, to their or to our uh, Christian faith. As Christians here in the United States of America, we enjoy tremendous religious freedoms, and we are thankful to uh, God's work through the founding fathers in order to uh, bless us with those. And it is good to be reminded that not all Christians in the world uh, enjoy these kind of freedoms or enjoy freedoms that even remotely approach the ones that we enjoy. Uh, in Open Doors Ministry, there are 2021 statistics. Over the last year, uh, there are over 340 million Christians living in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. 4,761 uh, 4, Christians killed for their faith, 4,488 Christians and other uh, Christian buildings uh, attacked, 4,277 Christians uh, detained without trial or arrested or sentenced or imprisoned without trial. Uh, Open Door Ministries lists 12 countries that are uh, uh, extreme persecution environments for Christians uh, in the world presently. North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, uh, Eritrea, uh, Yemen, Iran, Nigeria, uh, India, Iraq, and Syria. 
They also list 38 other countries that are very high persecution environments for uh, Christians, including the Sudan, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, China, even Mexico, because of the danger that the cartels represent in their corruption and their targeting of especially pastors within Mexico for their resistance to uh, align themselves in any way with, with that corruption or with that uh, industry. It's good to be reminded that the Bible was written to Christians, <clears throat> all Christians in the world, and not just to Christians in the United States, even though we live here and we kind of tend to think of it in that context, but it's written uh, to Christians in all of the broad diversity of our personalities, our backgrounds, uh, our perspectives and all, but also in terms of the environment within the world in which we uh, serve the Lord and we live for the Lord and uh, we walk with Him uh, as Christians. It doesn't mean that the letter of Smyrna doesn't have anything to say to us as Christians in the United States of America because each and every one of us are going to be persecuted for our faith on some level. It isn't a, a question of, of if, uh, it's always a question of when, and the degree of that persecution will be uh, largely determined by when we live in human history and by what part of the world we live in during that period in, in human history. But as we'll see, this is a reality for every Christian, and the letter speaks to every Christian. As with the church of Ephesus, there's a great deal that you could say about Smyrna, very, very significant city in the ancient world, but we will focus upon what we need to know about it in order to understand the letter. And I don't think that we can really get our bearings at all with understanding what in the world Jesus is saying here without a little bit of a historical background upon the city of uh, Smyrna. It was established, and interestingly enough, Smyrna is the uh, only one of the seven churches that exists, uh, or, or city of Smyrna is the only one of the seven that exists to this day. All of the others have ceased to exist, and it is uh, the modern-day Izmir in the country of, of Turkey. Uh, the uh, city of, of Smyrna was established as a seaport at about 1000 B.C., uh, by the Greeks and uh, following the death of Alexander the Great and apparently under his orders, the Seleucids who were, when the uh, Grecian Empire was broken up at the death of Alexander, it was divided into four groups and uh, one of those groups was uh, the Seleucids and uh, apparently under his orders, the Seleucids uh, built Smyrna into this magnificent and very significant city in uh, the uh, late part of the fourth century BC. Historically, the leaders of Smyrna were nothing if they were not uh, pragmatic. They could really spot uh, an up-and-coming, up-and-comer in terms of, uh, of political, in terms of, of uh, cloud of military influence. They really knew who to hitch their wagons to uh, as, as a country and, uh, and, uh, and align themselves with politically and, and uh, militarily for their own benefit. 
And in 197 BC, they cut their ties and their alliances with Pergamum, and they firmly aligned themselves with Rome very, very early on in, uh, in Rome, Rome's ascent. And then two years later, as an evidence of their loyalty to Rome, they built a temple for the worship of Roma. Roma was the female deity that personified uh, the ideals of, uh, of Rome and the Roman Empire more broadly, the political, the moral, uh, the religious ideals of the Roman state as, as a whole. Of course, their alliance to Rome uh, greatly endeared them uh, to Rome. And when their marketplace, their agora, was destroyed in an earthquake in 178 B.C., the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius uh, ordered it to be rebuilt at Roman uh, expense. Later in 23 B.C., Smyrna was given the honor of building a temple to the emperor Tiberius because of its long years of faithfulness uh, to Rome and as a result to make a, a long uh, uh, story short, the city became one of the great centers for emperor worship within the Roman Empire in which the Roman emperors were uh, worshipped as demigods, uh, as being half man, half god, or uh, uh, simply ascribing deity them altogether, being uh, full-blown deities. Caesar worship, um, <clears throat> important to understand a little bit about that as well. When Rome began to conquer the ancient world, they brought very, very many benefits to the countries and to the lands uh, that they uh, conquered. They established law and order in that part of the world in, in a way in which it had never known uh, before. Pirates no longer dominated the seas as they had. Uh, roads were cleared of the thieves and robbers that dominated them up to that time. Petty and not so petty wars that occurred between nations and clans and tribes uh, were forced to cease under the Pax Romana. And as a result of that, commercial shipping, shipping opened up, trade opened up, merchants prospered, and the average person prospered, comparatively speaking, like had not been known in that part of the world up to that time. And as a result, people were very, very grateful for the stability and the law and order that Rome uh, introduced into uh, human history in the, in the uh, Roman Empire. And as, as you might imagine, the gratitude on the part of people translated into a very deep appreciation and a loyalty toward the Roman uh, uh, Empire and the greatness of, of Rome. But how could uh, uh, one formally express the, that kind of worship or that kind of gratitude uh, to Rome. And, uh, well, there was only one uh, personage in, in the Roman Empire that they deemed represented the entire empire uh, for which uh, this uh, uh, might occur, and that was uh, to enter into uh, emperor worship, and so it was born. The early Roman emperors did not in any way view themselves as gods or demigods and did not want worship. 
but ultimately it did develop within the Roman uh, Empire and, uh, and, uh, and early on it was strictly uh, voluntary and although there were very strong pockets here and there in terms of cities practicing it uh, like Smyrna, it wasn't a widespread uh, practice at that point in time. But later as the empire grew, they ran into the problem that any empire or any nation that runs into when it's made up of many nations, many peoples, many cultures, many languages, and that is how do you hold this kind of diversity together? How do you keep it united? And at that point in time, Rome decided to make uh, emperor worship uh, official, and the emperor was officially seen as God, as a unifying factor within uh, the empire. And then things got uh, even worse when uh, the Roman governor Domitian, who was ruling at the time uh, of this revelation given to uh, <clears throat> the apostle John here, uh, he took the next step and decreed that emperor worship was now no longer voluntary, but it was mandatory. And once a year, every Roman citizen had to go to some kind of a temple or an altar that was dedicated to the emperor. They would offer a, a, a finger a, between two fingers an amount of incense that would be burnt upon the flame. They would declare that Caesar is Lord, re receive a certificate for having done so, which would be good for uh, the following uh, following uh, year as an evidence that you had done your religious duty. The offering of that incense was viewed as a sacrifice being offered to uh, Caesar. It was viewed as an act of worship. The Ro Romans were not <clears throat> jealous in, in this regard. They demanded this at this point in their history, but <clears throat> they didn't demand that a person would only worship Caesar. You could worship any and all of the other gods that were represented within the Roman Empire, and Rome didn't care. But they did demand that you did have to also offer incense and worship uh, to, uh, to Caesar. And uh, to refuse to offer this to Caesar would, of course, immediately uh, brand you as unusual within the empire. It would brand you as being disloyal uh, to Rome. And, of course, Christians could play no part in this because it would constitute idolatry. And so under Domitian and for the next 200 years in the history of the Roman Empire, tremendous persecution was meted out uh, against uh, Christians because of their refusal to declare Caesar to be Lord in their lives in the offering of this uh, incense. And while not, not every city in the Roman Empire was as strict in their re, in, re, uh, enforcement of, uh, of this particular act as, as Smyrna was, Smyrna was very, very strict because they had long, long prided themselves on their loyalty to Rome and desiring Rome's favor. And so to, so to be a Christian in Smyrna at this time within the Roman Empire put you in one of the greatest places of 
persecution against Christians that existed at that time in the world. Now, formally into the letter, you notice that as all of these seven letters begin, it's addressed to the messenger of the church in Smyrna. The, the, title, the name of the city, Smyrna, comes from a Greek word, that, uh, it, it, the exact word that is myrrh. And myrrh is a reference to a, a fragrant herb. In the ancient world, it was used specifically for embalming dead bodies. You might remember that it was involved in the embalming of Jesus' body. Uh, at his uh, death where Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea uh, uh, they took him and they brought a mixture of uh, myrrh and aloes about a hundred pounds and they bound his body as they put him in the grave. Myrrh is an interesting herb in that while it has some amount of fragrance in and of itself it only releases the fullness of its fragrance when it's crushed. And speaking to the fact that that myrrh related to Jesus' burial as he bore all of the sins of mankind in human history upon that cross as a demonstration of the love of God, all of that bearing upon him, uh, what came forth from that crushing was this beautiful fragrance and demonstration of the love of, of God. And then as Christians in Smyrna were being crushed by this tribulation, the poverty that they were facing, the blasphemy they were, they were placing, uh, facing, that through all of it their lives were a sweet fragrance to God. Jesus' self-description uh, can, uh, begins there in the latter part of verse 8. And we remember that he comes to each of these churches and he describes himself in some way. He pulls one or two elements out of John's description of him in, in uh, chapter 1. And what is drawn out of his description in chapter 1 are things that Jesus himself chooses. There's nothing random about it. There's something that each of the churches needs to be reminded of concerning him. And so he comes to them as these things says, the first and the last. And being the first and the last, that was one of the names of God uh, in the Bible. And in coming this way, Jesus was reminding them that he is divine as the Son of God, he is eternal, he is self-existent, and he is almighty. That is, that he possesses all might. And why would Jesus sense the need to tell a suffering church, Christian church, or a suffering individual Christian to remind them of the fact that he is almighty? I think there's a lot of reasons for that. But I think one of the reasons is that so often when we find ourselves in the depth of trial that the church at Smyrna found themselves in that are very deep, very, very difficult, that we can find ourselves wavering concerning Jesus' power, uh, concerning His almightiness. After all, if He is almighty, why do I remain? in this circumstance? Why does my body remain in this kind of a condition? And there can be doubts, not in small trials, uh, but these kind of massive trials that can occur in our lives. And we can wonder whether he knows 
anything about our problems? Does He even care about our problems? And, uh, and if He's as powerful a- as we thought Him to be, if He's really in full control uh, of my life and my circumstances, this becomes a, a question. And it has the potential to put a massive stumbling block in, in the path of, of, of our faith as Christians. It's important to realize concerning crises of faith that not every crisis of faith occurs because of a lack of faith in a Christian's life. Many crises of faith that occur in a Christian's life do occur because of a lack of faith. But many crises of faith that we endure as Christians is because we do have faith. And the biggest thing that we struggle with is not what God can or cannot do. We know what He can and, we, what he, uh, that, and there's nothing that He can't do. We have a long history with Him. But what we struggle with is what we know that He could do in our life in an instant, and yet He isn't doing it. And that was the great trial that stumbled even two of the greatest saints under the Old Covenant, uh, Elijah the prophet and John the Baptist. Their faith was not because they doubted what God was able to do. Their faith was rocked because they knew what he could do, and he wasn't doing it. He wasn't doing what they thought he ought to be doing in their circumstances. And the problem that rocked John the Baptist and rocked Elijah the prophet, the problem at their core, and it can be ours as well, is not that God was failing them, but that they had brought a wrong expectation uh, to their Christianity, so to speak, to their relationship with God. And the idea that by being a Christian, I will somehow be able to escape Uh, the deepest trials that an individual can go through uh, in, uh, in life. And it's important to realize that just because I'm a Christian doesn't make me immune to crushing difficulty in my life. Allow me to read a couple verses uh, to you in, in this uh, very regard. Jesus spoke in John chapter 16, verse 33. These things I've spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica. He said, for in fact we told you before, when we were with you, that we would suffer tribulation, just as it happened, and you know. Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Peter speaks of the same thing in his first epistle. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. Jesus himself in John chapter 15 verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will also keep uh, yours. And so these verses come in in kind of a necessary way, at least related to my life, to blow up these kind of false expectations that I can have concerning the Christian life. I mean, after all, in becoming a Christian, uh, I am a much nicer person. I am a much better person than when I wasn't a Christian. Uh, God has done a a great miracle in my life and in your life as well. You would think that everyone at every family gathering and every workplace and every neighborhood would be thrilled that we're saved, and yet they're, they're not. And, and difficulty can come into our lives. I typically think if I'm a good Christian, everything is going to be okay and everybody's going to like me. But we can never expect the world to treat Jesus in us any differently than it treated Jesus 2,000 years in his incarnation. And I need to be reminded of that and also related to the difficulty that can be ours uh, physically and materially as well. And the reason that it's important for these verses to blow that uh, false definition of Christianity to smithereens is that if I hold to that small false definition of, of Christianity, then I will be greatly stumbled when great trials come into my life. And so this is Jesus' way of saying, I'm still God, I'm still Almighty, even when you're in the middle of tribulation and even when you're in the middle of poverty. And sometimes we just need to hear that reassurance. Jesus also uh, came to them as he who was dead and came to life. And so he reminded them, he reminds us of his victory over death, of his absolute authority over death, uh, that death did not have the final say in his life, and that he will never allow death to have the final say in any of our lives either. That if and when it occurs within our lives, it'll simply usher us into the glory of heaven. He goes on in verse 9, and he declares, I know your works. In other words, he lets them know, I'm fully aware of your condition. And the first, when we read about the condition, the first thought can be, well, why aren't you changing it? As we would put ourselves in the shoes of, of these people. So he says, I know your, your works. There was nothing going on in that church that, that missed his, uh, his, his eye, and, and it was a, a great assurance. I don't know about you, but when I'm in a, a really, really deep trial Um, to know that he knows goes a long way in my life. I mean, to know him however well we know him, but to walk with him for years, to know him deeply, to know his nature, to know what he's like and always like, to know that he knows is a source of great peace in and of itself. I remember being in a great trial a few years ago, and Jeremy Camp had a song, and he's had ample 
difficulties and trials in his, in his own life. And he wrote a song uh, called, He Knows. And God really used that song to help me in that season. The reassurance that he, he knows what's going on. He said, I know your tribulation, verse 9, and the Greek word that Jesus uses here is thalipsis. Again, it speaks of a crushing pressure, the pressure that is put upon a, a grape in order to, to get the juice out of it, upon olives in order for the oil to be poured out of it. In the ancient world, if they wanted to elicit a confession from you, they would sometimes put a great board across your chest put a great stone upon your chest, so much so that you could only exhale a little bit, but you couldn't re-inhale, and it would slowly crush you to death uh, if you didn't produce the confession that they wanted it to produce. So it speaks of a crushing, I cannot get my breath kind of tribulation and difficulty that they were in, in their Christian lives for simply being Christians in the city of, of Smyrna. And it was to be a Christian there was to be under that constant kind of pressure. He said, I know your poverty. The word that Jesus uses here for poverty in the Greek is an interesting one. There is a Greek word for poverty that means a person has only what's necessary uh, to survive, uh, food and clothing, but they have nothing extra. That's not the word that Jesus uses here in speaking to this church. The Greek word that Jesus uses here speaks of absolute destitution, the poverty of one who has absolutely nothing at all. And you can imagine to be a Christian within Smyrna uh, and how marginalized they uh, must have been as a result of their refusal to participate in this emperor worship and how their failure to engage in it, they would have been viewed as a disloyal to Rome, as not worthy of the blessings or the benefits uh, of Rome, and people not uh, hiring you in order to make a living, stores not selling anything to you if you even did have money, nobody renting any space for your business, nobody renting to put a room uh, over, over your head. And, uh, and, and ultimately, as a result, this kind of poverty. And imagine the father in that kind of a place. Uh, here he is. He will not burn this incense to Caesar. He will not allow to come out of his lips that anyone is Lord other than Jesus Christ. And he watches not only as he pays that price for that decision, but as his wife pays that price and his children pay uh, that, that price. And the spiritual depth that would have been required of them to stand in that kind uh, of a, an, an environment. And just offering a pinch of incense to Caesar just once a year would have made all of this poverty uh, go away in an instant, but they wouldn't compromise. 
and, and, and say anyone or anything was Lord except for Jesus Christ. Now, when Jesus speaks to this church about their poverty, and when he writes to Smyrna, Smyrna is with Philadelphia, the only two churches that Jesus offers no correction to. He finds no fault in these two churches. And yet he speaks to them of the greatness of their poverty. And how interesting this is in light of the kind of Western doctrine of the positive confession movement or the faith movement that is so big in, in our country and elsewhere. That if you just have enough faith in God, you will never have sickness and you will always be in abundance uh, uh, materially. And Jesus comes in and he blows the whole thing up. A lot of places, but he does it right here in this letter to the church at Smyrna. And, uh, and it's important to understand that truly biblical doctrine and a, a truly biblical Christianity is one that is true of all Christians in every part of the world and not just in the affluence of the West. What is real about the Christian life, what is real about Christianity and, and, and biblical about Christianity, it is as true for Christians in North Korea as it is in South Korea. It's as true for Christians in Afghanistan as it is in the United States of America. And a biblical Christianity will preach everywhere in the world where uh, the church is persecuted or not, whether it has religious freedoms or not, or whether it is rich or it is poor. And any Christianity that cannot be preached and it cannot be practiced anywhere and everywhere in the world, including in Smyrna, is not a biblical Christianity. It is a cultural Christianity that has become viewed as a biblical Christianity. But a biblical Christianity will, uh, is uh, effectual for every Christian in every situation, including in uh, Smyrna. Jesus declared to them, as he spoke about their physical poverty, but he said, but you are rich. You notice he commends them. He does not rebuke them for a lack of faith. He doesn't rebuke them uh, uh, for uh, not having enough faith. If they did have enough faith, then all of this would change for them. He doesn't even promise them material prosperity as their right, but he still calls them rich. And how are they rich? Now, the rich in, we're rich in our salvation as Christians. Jesus said, for what will it profit a man if he gains the entire world and he loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his, uh, his soul? Every single Christian in the world is richer than the richest person in the world 
who is not saved. But that is not where our riches end. We are uniquely rich in hope. We are rich in peace. We are rich in prayer. We are rich in the Holy Scriptures. We are rich in a relationship with God. We are rich as members of the body of Christ. We are rich in forgiveness of sins and rich in freedom from sin. And on and on and on the list could go. Jesus said in verse 9, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. As if the tribulation and the poverty that they were under uh, was not enough, they were being blasphemed by some portion of a very large Jewish population that existed in Smyrna at the time who used this issue of Caesar worship uh, as an opportunity to attack the Christians there, probably by informing on them to the Roman uh, authorities. And the reason that the Jews were able to do this uh, uniquely within the Roman Empire at that time is Judaism was a recognized religion by the Romans, and Christianity was not. And because Judaism was a recognized religion within the Roman Empire, they did not have to offer the incense or to say that Caesar is Lord. But Christians did not have that protection, but they had the same convictions of the Old Testament and now in the New Testament that it would constitute idolatry to do so. And of all of the people that existed in the entire world who ought to have known what a vulnerable place that they were in and had compassion upon them for their faith in God, it should have been the Jews. But in this particular uh, synagogue, Uh, they were not, and turning in these Christians and informing on them to Roman officials. Jesus declared that their specific synagogue, as it was there in, uh, uh, in Smyrna, he declared it to be a synagogue of Satan. You say, wow, and Jesus is saying, among other things, I mean, very, very strongly, that not A Jew is not a Jew just because of what they are outwardly. A Jew must also be a Jew inwardly in order to be a Jew, as the Bible uh, describes the Jewish people. Paul wrote about this very issue in Romans chapter 2. He said, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor uh, is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is from men, uh, not from men, but from God. And so, but also engaged in the devil's uh, work of persecuting Christians, and they made every effort to uh, not only keep people from becoming Christians, but they endeavored to stamp out the existence of Christianity within the city of of Smyrna. 
And this wasn't the first time that Jesus would speak, had, had spoken in these kind of terms against uh, Jewish religious leaders that were opposing him and his teaching and his call upon people to be saved, uh, becoming an obstacle to people uh, becoming uh, a, a Christians, having rejected Jesus themselves, but now making every effort to keep other people away from him as well. Jesus spoke to the Jewish religious leaders of his day in John chapter 8, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. And why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. He is a liar, and, uh, 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 for he is a liar and the father of it. Jesus is not talking about all Jews, both then and today. He's talking about this group of Jews in Smyrna and talking about the Jewish religious leaders that were turning people away from a faith in Christ during Jesus' public uh, ministry. I think it's important to realize that when Christians are persecuted for simply being a Christian within a society for simply obeying and following Jesus, it is to that degree that that same culture and that same society has come under the influence of the devil, whether they realize it or not. And we see in our own nation significant blocks, powerful blocks of people, and becoming more powerful by the week, that take this kind of a position against Christians for simply being Christians. And there's always a demonic origin to it. And what is true of large blocks of people in persecuting uh, Christians as a whole is also true of individuals who persecute Christians individually, whether within a family or within a workplace or within a neighborhood, whether the persecuting person understands it or not, they are operating under the influence of the devil in that uh, persecution. Now, you notice Jesus' encouragement to them in verse 10. He said, do not fear any of these things which you are about to suffer. Do not fear here is in the present tense. And what it means is they were afraid. They were presently afraid. You look, look at the condition that they were in, the difficulty of it. And now they know that greater persecution is coming because Jesus tells them about it. And of course it's going to provoke fear within their hearts. So they are afraid of all of this in the same way that you and I would be afraid uh, of it in our own lives. And, and so Jesus speaks to them related to that fear. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. 
I think that Pastor David Guzik brings out a, a tremendous insight in his commentary from, uh, related to this passage. And here I quote. He wrote, Sometimes we think that Christians who endure persecution are almost superhuman. And we sometimes don't appreciate the depths of fear they struggle with. And it's good to be reminded uh, of that. They are just like us, only in a different environment. And if we view them as something different from us, or something superhuman, or some super category of Christian, then we will cease to pray for them in the way that they need our prayers. I think about, as Jesus speaks here, about the suffering that was coming, a demonically inspired persecution of them that Jesus said would result in their imprisonment. It would occur in an attempt to overthrow their faith. You remember when, when Satan came to God over the issue and the subject of Job. And he came to God and he made an accusation against Job. Job, uh, God, Job only follows you because of the blessings you give him. That's the only reason anyone follows you. Not for you. They follow you for your blessings. And if you let me touch his health and you let me touch his material wealth, he'll curse you to your face. And that was the accusation. No one in this world follows you for who you are, but only what you give. And you know how the story ended. Job proved the devil wrong in that accusation. And Jesus called on these saints to do the same under the same test. And he calls us to do the same as well. That I do not follow him for the health or the wealth or the blessings. I follow him because he is worthy of that. Independent of all of the blessings that he is so lavishly pours out upon our lives. And Jesus told them, that it would involve a period of tribulation, a period of 10 days that they would be imprisoned in this suffering. Some scholars view this as a series of 10 specific persecutions of Christians that occurred under the Roman Empire, beginning with Nero and then ending when Constantine had his conversion experience. Uh, that may very well uh, be true. I think we're safest in saying that the 10 days here communicates that the persecution would come, but it would have a beginning and it would have an end. And it would, it, it would be a limited time in its uh, duration and a relatively short period of time in the light uh, of eternity. And then he says something just astonishing. Jesus says to, the, to, the, to these that he loves so much in Smyrna, in verse 10, he said, be faithful unto death. Stay faithful to me, even to the point of death, 
and beyond death. Even if it means death, they were to remain faithful to Jesus, even if facing death for doing so, and even if they were martyred as a result of staying faithful to Him. Now that's something. In the United States of America today, and all of the ways to build a church, not for everybody, but a lot of it, it's very, very popular. You can't say anything hard to Christians. You can't say anything demanding to Christians. They won't come back. You say, how different is that from what Jesus speaks to these He loves in Smyrna? You be faithful to me unto death. That's what I'm calling you to do. And in saying this, he wasn't springing any kind of a new demand of, of, of discipleship or being a Christian. This isn't a new Jesus in the book of Revelation. It's what he demands of all Christians. You remember in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, you want to follow me? Let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me to the point of death, and then follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And Jesus does not in this letter any way minimize the essential costliness of Christianity. And because we are not in that kind of an environment in the city of Modesto, it doesn't mean that we don't take that and embrace that costliness to ourselves and our own commitment uh, to uh, Christ. In other words, the idea that we only need to be faithful in our identification with Jesus as our Lord until it reaches this threshold. And then once my life is in jeopardy, or once tribulation is in play, once poverty is in play, then I'm free to compromise and, and to deny Him. And you know what's interesting to me is Jesus speaks this very, very strong thing to this church and to us. There is zero hand-wringing Zero hand-wringing on Jesus' part here. He makes no apology for the demand, and, and, and there's no expression of regret that He has called them into the very life that has produced this difficulty in their life. He doesn't apologize uh, uh, for it uh, at, at all. And uh, and that, that following Him was the cause of it. And there's a strength in this, I think, a call of, to courage to realize this is who we are as Christians in this world. I remember watching those Coptic Christians in Egypt. I don't know that any of them were Egyptians. I think they were probably servants in Egypt that had identified with Christ and they were taken by that Muslim terror group brought to the very seashore of the Mediterranean Sea all of it was being videoed and they were uh, tied up and then each man brought up a knife behind them and cut their throats 
And on the audio of the video is, the, is these Christians identifying, identified with Christ, identifying with Christ, had their throats slit in 2019 or sooner. The audio picked up their prayers and their call to Jesus Christ as they stood on that Mediterranean Sea. And this is not just the strength of the commitment that God calls us to as Christians. This is, this is the power of the kind of life that He empowers us to be able to live. That Christianity is no less this kind of a commitment to follow Him at, at all costs. There's something strong here. There's something heroic here in what Christ calls His people to that will never be stirred in our hearts where we're just being told that if we have enough faith, we'll never have a problem in our life. Or just give these sermonettes, as J. Vernon McGee said, uh, to Christianettes. This is intended to make us realize what Christianity is and what it uniquely is in human history and in the world today and that this is what God calls us to and it's the life that we can live and have the privilege of being able to live. Whether death comes to us at the end of a long life of being faithful to God or it comes to us in an instant with a knife to, uh, to our throats. Someone, I think even the strongest of us can think, I, I'd like to think I would make a stand like that for Jesus in Smyrna or in that, the sands of that Mediterranean Sea. I would want to do that, but I'm not sure I would be able to do that in, in that, uh, that, uh, that moment to die that, that, dread, that death. But if it comes to that for any of us as Christians, Jesus will give us the grace. He will meet with us personally. He will give us the grace we need in that moment. Not two years ahead of time, not two days ahead of time, but in that moment. You remember the first martyr of the Christian church, Stephen, in the book of Acts? And they're about to stone him for his faith in Jesus Christ and his faithfulness to him. And as he's there about to die a martyr's death, Acts chapter 7 verse 55, it's described for us not for his benefit, but for our benefit. But he being full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. God gave him what he needed from his throne to stand in that environment. Psalm 116, verse 15, famously, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. What it communicates is, is that when every single saint dies, Jesus is present with us. He sees it. He witnesses it. And He will provide to us what we need 
to die whatever death he calls us to die for his glory. Corrie ten Boom, a Christian who survived the Nazi concentration camps at Ravensbrück in World War II, where 50,000 women died in that that prison camp, including her sister, she maintained a a memory of a conversation that she had with her father uh, long before she ended up in that that prison camp when she was a, a young girl. And she said to her father, I'm afraid that I will never be strong enough to die as a martyr. And he said to her, when you have to go on a journey, when do I give you the money for the fare? Two weeks before? She said, no, Daddy, on the day that I'm leaving. And he said, precisely. And our wise Father in heaven knows when we are going to uh, need things too. And when the time comes to die, you will find the strength you need just in time. And it's true. And Jesus speaks to this church and He says, I will give you the crown of life. And He reminded them of the eternal reward that awaits this kind of a Christian life. They may take your life physically, but all it will do is bring you into the glory of heaven to be crowned in in, in absolute contradistinction to how you were esteemed in the world. And then he called upon them and us to have an ear to hear, that is to take this seriously. The lost never deny their gods on their deathbed. And we are not to deny Christ. And his promise then to overcomers, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death, which speaks of eternal judgment that follows the physical uh, death. And in this, Jesus reminded them and reminds us that there is something worse than being a persecuted Christian, and that is to not be a Christian at all. For all of its hardship, for all of its difficulty, we will never face the second death, the lake of fire. And that judgment is coming in human history, as sure as I stand before you, and when that judgment comes, it will come nowhere near us as Christians. And one day we will be thankful for that immeasurably when when it doesn't draw close to us at all, and thankful for our salvation and whatever price we paid in this life uh, in, in order to be faithful to Christ. And so this is what we learn about Jesus in this part of the revelation, that we're to be faithful to Him unto death, however and whenever death might come. And I don't know about you, but that does something good in me, especially in the weakness of our culture, and sometimes especially even in the weakness of Christian culture in the United States of America. This is the strength of what he calls us to as Christians. And it is a privilege to be able to live for him with this kind of a commitment. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, 
you can become a Christian. You say, wait a second, I don't know. No, you do know. Your sin has separated you from a relationship with God, the very thing that you've been created for. You will never enjoy life. You will never be satisfied until you're in that relationship. You're looking for Him. And if you'd like to put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins today, there will be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to begin that life with Christ. And if you need prayer for anything in your life today, they'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for the needed perspective that this letter brings to each of our hearts and to each of our lives and to each of our relationships with you. And we thank you, Lord, for the beauty of what it is that you call us to, the privilege of being able to live this kind of life in the midst of even the greatest demonic opposition and the opposition of human beings. We thank you for the privilege of being able to identify with you at whatever the cost might be. And we thank you for the strength that you give us and will always give us to identify with you in this way. We love you. We are grateful for this Christian life. Whatever church, Lord, we attend, whichever of the seven, whichever today, and Lord, what a privilege it would be to be a part of the church of Smyrna, whether today in the individualness of our own life or one day if we face it as Christians within this nation. Thank you for the privilege of knowing you, following you, and representing you in this world. And we thank you in your name. In Jesus' name, amen.